Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bowman Legacies, where we make life better for the blue collar worker, one CEO at a time. We're also brought to you by author Grizz Waller, who is writing a Western that will knock you on your behind. With that aside, I want to introduce to you to somebody that um, I've been following on LinkedIn for a while now, and I am overwhelmed and honored to have him on the show. This show I know will inspire you to keep moving because this guy gets knocked down, but he keeps getting back up. Thomas Parker is a Marine Corps vet keynote speaker at Mission 6-0 and so much more. Um, Thomas, welcome to the Bowman Legacy Show. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. So, Thomas, you know, I think, I, you know, I told you before, we kind of catered the blue collar people, um, equipment movers and people that are out there just making it happen in the industry right now. And they're a group of people that just haven't been touched for so long. And uh, we kind of kick them under the rug because we forget that every ounce of infrastructure in this world bases on these people. And daily, they need a daily dose of inspiration from people who they can actually relate with. <laughs> and I really feel that they can relate with you. Let's just jump in there, man. Like, I, I don't even know where to wade in other than where does your story start? Where, where were you born and raised? Um, I was born uh, in Wailuku, Hawaii. Oh, really? Um, and then... My mom and dad thought it was a great idea uh, at around the ripe old age of one to move to Alaska um, and then move from Alaska to uh, where my mom was born and raised, which is rural uh, northwestern Montana. Oh, wow. um, for those of you turn tuning in, I'm, I am the closest monument near, near me is uh, Glacier National Park. Um, and so it uh, I. I grew up in a town that might have had 5,000 people. Um, uh, everybody here is a blue collar worker. I, we have a, a small hospital, a uh, farming, ranching community. Um, Sounds and, like uh, What'd you say? Sounds like heaven. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a nice place. Um, we're also uh, located on a Native American reservation, the Salish uh, and Kootenai tribes. Um, and so it it uh it led to me getting an opportunity to have um, a slightly different upbringing. Uh, when I was younger, um, white people were kind of the minority here, uh, and then we moved away from that as we moved forward and became more progressive as a society. Um, but to continue with my story, so I went through high school. I was a big dude. Um, I graduated high school at. I don't know, 6'3", 260, 270. Wow. Um, and I spent most of my life looking up to Warren Sapp. Uh, for those of you that don't know, um, he was an all-star lineman. Uh, he played for the Oakland Raiders, for some other people. Um, he was a freak in nature to me. He was 330 pounds, uh, ran a 4840, just incredible. And that's what I wanted to be. Um, but I didn't... Uh, I didn't take school serious. Um, I went to school to, to play sports, to hang out with my friends and to party. I mean, that's why I went to school. Grades didn't mean anything to me. I thought that I'd go to college off of raw athletic talent. Um, and I'm, I wasn't a superior athlete or anything. Uh, I just felt like I was gifted and I was better than you. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, when I when it came time to graduate high school and I sent off, uh, whatchamacallit, game film to colleges, I had colleges tell me I could come play for them, but I couldn't get a scholarship because my cumulative GPA for high school was under 2.0. Um, and not because I'm not intelligent, but because I didn't care. <laughs> I, di- I didn't care about schooling. It didn't, as long as my grades were high enough to pass or for me to play, that's all that mattered. I did the same thing. And, and so, uh, I found myself in, uh, a pickle, I guess is, is a word I'll use is so it was either I worked the rest of my life being a blue collar worker, um, doing manual labor. Uh, I started my arborist training uh, as soon as I got out of high school. My uncle owns a tree company here locally. Um, and I was working with him. And uh, that's what I was doing. And I was okay with it for the time being. Uh, and But then after about a year of that, I started looking around. And I didn't want to be stuck doing that forever. I love my uncle very much, but I didn't want his life. Um, but I didn't know how to escape it. So. I had talked to, high, or to a recruiter in high school uh, during wrestling season, actually. And he wanted me to weigh 203 pounds or something like that. And at the time, I, I think I weighed 208 or 220. I don't know. I was a couple pounds away. Um, and he asked me how much I weighed. And I said, I weigh this much. He told me I weighed too much. And they weren't, the Marine Corps wasn't willing to talk to me again until I fit within their weight standards. Uh, this was also the same day wrestling practice started. And I was like, dude, I'll weigh what you want me to weigh as soon as practice is over. I wrestled too, yeah. Um, And he wasn't having it. (laughs) So uh, left a bad taste in my mouth. But one of my buddies, my my best high school friend, joined the Marine Corps. And when he came home on pre-deployment leave, or not pre-deployment leave, I apologize. Um, When he came home on recruiter's assistance, he's like, hey, can you talk to a recruiter for me? And I was like, no, they pissed me off in high school. I'm not talking to him. Um, and he continued to bombard me with a request to talk to the recruiter until I said, yes. Um, but this time it was a different recruiter. He was another local Montana boy, um, and, uh, grew up wrestling and everything. And, um, he was in the infantry in the Marine Corps. So when I, when I walked into the office, I told him, I'm not joining unless I can get an infantry spot. I'm just not doing it. I don't see another reason. And he's like, whoa, we don't have any. And I was like, okay, bye. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. I might be able to find you one. Um, and magically one appeared. And uh, I joined the Marine Corps as, a, as an infantry one, as an infantryman or an 0311. Um, and that was in 2009. I was 19 when I went to boot camp. Wow. Uh, is this what you were looking for? I can walk you through this. Yeah. Let's go, baby. Okay. You're doing good. Okay. Um, I went to the school of infantry. I went through boot camp and everything. Um, after that, I got orders to 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment, um, which is on Camp Pendleton in California. And at the time, and might possibly still be the most decorated Marine Corps unit that the Marine Corps had at the time. Oh, wow. um, uh, they had literally fought in every battle and skirmish that America has had since the Marine Corps was founded. Um, but after being there, we were told we were going to go on a MEW. And for those of you that don't know, a MEW or MEU is Marine Expeditionary Unit, meaning that you will go uh, on a boat, usually to other countries, and train their forces um, and do exercises with them. Uh, The most important part to that to me was that I was going to go to other countries and party when we weren't training. 
Yeah. Um, Which is a young 19, 20 year old. That's just where yeah, that, I mean, that, that's what I was focused on. Yeah. Um, and then after about a year of that, um, we got, we all got brought together and our battalion commander had, had got our deployment changed from a mew to a combat deployment. And so now instead we were going to go to Sangin, Afghanistan. Um, and on September uh, 28th of 2010, 10 days after I turned 21, um, we went to Afghanistan. Um, and where we went in Afghanistan, no NATO forces had pushed that far into where we were. We were in Sangin, um, and we just continued to push further and further into enemy territory. Um, and uh, while there, we received several casualties. Um, and on December 11th of 2010, I stepped on an improvised explosive device, uh, resulting in the loss of my left hand, except my thumb. And uh, I don't know how to do it without doing a handstand, but I lost both my legs. Um, one, my left leg at my hip and my right leg above my knee. Um, from there, I was CASVAC'd to uh, Bethesda, Maryland. I have a question. I don't know if this would fit in with your podcast. When the IED detonated, I was conscious for most of it. For most of it. Valid. Did you enjoy being a soldier? I mean, was this like, was this a life that you're like, you know what, man, this is something that I enjoy or because, you know, everybody's different. Some people are like, man, this is life for me. And other people are like, yeah, I'll do my thing and get out. I would have stayed. Um, I loved the Marine Corps uh, and still do. I don't I don't know how it functions now. I've been out for uh, eight years. Yeah. But I loved especially the infantry, the Marine Corps. Um, I'm naturally an aggressive person. Uh, I'm abrasive. and I fit well. You could you could talk without a filter to each other. Yeah. And it was understood. There wasn't the weird gray area that occurs in civilian society where you're not entirely sure where some people are standing uh in correlation to what you're trying to do. There wasn't that in the military and there was even less of that in combat. Yeah. Um I I have another young friend that uh wants to was talking about joining the military. Um and somebody else said, no, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Uh, and when he explained his reasoning, it, it clicked on or in my mind that I didn't think of it before. But me being a young man that was sent to war, I can't think of a better proving ground for the type of person I was. Um, because, like I said, I was aggressive. Uh, I would like to say I was a go-getter. Uh, but also, at the same time, I was kind of a lazy person. So, <laughs> but... Um, you're being honest and I love yeah, it. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how to be anything other than authentic. Yeah. Um, it's perfect. And so I was excited for combat. I didn't do what other guys did and researched it. Some guys like looked up Sangin and, and tried to see what they could find out about it. I didn't do that because I didn't want to know. Uh, and I've, I've continued this belief that if you, if you look into something in the future too much, you're going to make it terrifying. You're you're going to turn a gecko into a dragon. It's so true. It's a gecko into a dragon. That's a very beautiful way of saying because we freak ourselves out. We get yeah. so jacked up and we're sitting there dwelling and dwelling and dwelling on something that we blow something so far out of proportion. I mean, I've done it myself in starting my own business. I was completely freaked out. My wife was always like, like you, I have a good woman in my corner, right? And so 
that's what attracted me to you too. I was like, man, he's got a good woman and he's, you know, he's pushing forward, but that support was, she was like, you've got this. And I'm like, yeah, sure I do. Okay, whatever. And I freaked myself out just to find a pace and realize I can do this. That having, having somebody behind you that has that, that blind faith, uh, in you that, that anything is achievable, um, is incredible. And, and, I, I found that in the Marine Corps as well. Um, they weren't they weren't dudes I served with. They were my brothers. There were there were people that to this day I, I have three younger siblings, and to this day I'm closer to some of the guys I was in the Marine Corps with than I have my own blood siblings. Um, and so yeah, it was incredible. Like I knew that they trusted me. Even dudes. So there were guys in my unit that I hated that hated me, but yeah. I knew that as soon as we touched down in Afghanistan, they would do their job. Oh, um, for instance, like I said, um, I will, I'm going to go through what happened when I got blown up. Yeah. Um, and I feel that it's important because we're talking about that trust thing. Uh, when I got injured, I never questioned if I was, there was only one time that I questioned if I was going to die. Um, and so uh, we had received word the day before that there was a, a, a farmer that wanted these IEDs taken care of that were near his farm because he had small children and he didn't want them to step on them. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that the Taliban hides these IEDs. Um, and some of them never get detonated by uh, NATO forces. And so they get left there and they keep hiding more and more and more. And then I truly believe that, that the Taliban forgets where some of them are because several times locals stepped on IEDs or locals livestock would set off IEDs. Um, and so uh, like our greatest threat in Af where we were in Afghanistan wasn't the Taliban and their guns. Uh, they're actually horribly inaccurate. I don't know that they could hit a barn with a handful of rice at 10 paces. That part wasn't scary, uh, but it was the IEDs because you, you couldn't see them. It was uh, what is somebody coined it as uh, being a hopscotch of doom because you walk in a ranger file and the person in front of you has theoretically stepped on somewhere that was cleared by the engineer in the very front of the patrol. Yeah. Um, but if people weren't paying attention um, or trying to survey and, and not seeing where they stepped their feet, they could accidentally shift the route to somewhere that was no longer cleared. Hmm. Um, and so that's important because when we deployed to Afghanistan, we took, so many casualties that my team went from being the front team to I was the very last guy in the patrol on the day that I got blown up. I was the last guy out of 20 people. So um, it already passed through an area. And then you were the last guy and you still stepped on one. Well, here's the thing. We passed through it twice. Wow. So we, we walked up from our patrol base up this ridge and then followed uh, up this ridge where our patrol base could see us and then followed a road to where we were going, a road that we'd seen cars drive down. Because if there's if cars are driving down it, then there's probably not pressure plate IEDs, which was our most common one. It's a victim initiated. Yeah. Um, then they're probably not on the road because they're not gonna try to dodge them with their car. Yeah. Um, and so we walked up this ridge line and uh, then followed the road, detonated the IEDs, everything was fine. We were walking back. Um, and we had just come off of the road where we were going to turn left to where 
and our patrol base could now see us again. So the IED wasn't back late. Um, and uh, we got shot at. And so me being the guy in the rear, I turned to look behind us to figure out where it was coming from. We halted and faced outboard and waited to see if they were going to shoot again. And uh, our squad leader decided that we should continue to push because we couldn't find where it was coming from. Um, and it would be a lot hot, harder to find IEDs in the dark. Yeah. And it would soon be dark. It was it was four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon in Afghanistan. Um, and so we decided to push on. We were maybe 800 meters as the crow flies from our patrol base. Wow. And uh, we were continuing to walk and still not knowing where we got shot at from myself and, an and uh, another Marine began to leapfrog, meaning that one of us would stay set while one looking or holding rear security while one moved forward. And then once set, the other one would move. Um, and roughly 50 yards away from where we just halted, I stepped on the IED. Uh, and like I said a second ago, this is my recollection of it um, and other things I've been told. Uh, I may have unknowingly changed stuff in my mind. People tend to do that with memories. Oh, and, and so dramatic as this is, I mean, you're going through it like and, and, and people that are listening, you know, you don't, I know you've told this story a thousand times. There's someone listening right now who and I've been fighting back tears in my eyes just over your story right now i mean and people are like how can this guy just go through the story it's just because you have so progressed in your mind and moved forward but yeah things change when you're going through this kinds of stuff and it's easy to scramble things i'm sure yeah and well and to, to touch on on my ability to tell this story this easily um over time i guess i've disassociated myself with it yeah. to where uh, my injury doesn't impact me as much as seeing my brothers injured, as seeing the, my other peers. Um, and so I, I, it doesn't, it's a thing, it's like, when I recall it mentally, it's like watching a movie. I'm separated from it. Um, so uh, when, I, when I stepped on the IED, I felt this weird overwhelming pressure in my ears, uh, yeah. much like having a football helmet on and have somebody ear hole you. Mm -hmm. um and then i noticed immediately that i wasn't on the ground i was literally floating from the blast for a moment i don't know how long that was yeah. um and and maybe it, i made that up i don't know but that's what i remember and um <laughs> then i came crashing into the ground in a crater that was formed by the ied i was sitting upright and looking down and uh what seemed like moments after i hit the ground my uh a body came rushing through the, this thick dust that I don't think I could have seen my hand if I tried to, it was that thick. Mm -hmm. And um, IEDs in Afghanistan are made out of fertilizer or ammonia nitrate. Okay. Um, and so when they would detonate, um, they would always have this smell, this, that uh, I can't describe it. It smells like fertilizer. Yeah, uh, that, that would almost make you think of you trying to make your lawn grow or something. But I now equate it to something different. If I'm in the hardware store and walk down that aisle, I don't think of make my lawn growing. I think of IVs detonating. Wow. Um, and then the. I want to say rich irony scent of my own blood uh, was also incredibly pungent. Wow. Um. When the corpsman reached me, he tried to get me to lay down, and I refused to lay down at first. Uh, and eventually, he grabbed my, me by my chest and forced me on my back. 
But before he laid down or got me to lay down, I looked down at my legs or what used to be legs. Um, on my right leg, I could see exposed bone, what I assume was my tibia and fibia. Um, and my left leg looked like a giant mass of hamburger that had been run through a meat grinder and being held together by uh, little rubber band things. Wow. Um, and when all this was going on, I couldn't feel it. So as, as your nerve endings send signals to your brain, mm -hmm. there's only so many routes they can travel and it can only process so many of those at a time. And so my brain was still trying to get that congestion broken up. Um, and then the Corman gave me morphine. The morphine should have worked as a pain blocker, but it, it slowed my brain down enough to be able to process all of the pain signals. Oh. So now I could feel everything. Um, it felt like my legs had exploded outwards. So like there was a detonation from the center of them and that all my bones were shattered and what was left had been lit on fire. Um, our corpsman got a tourniquet on my right leg and then started working on my left leg and had put two tourniquets and all the combat gauze, uh, which combat gauze is gauze with uh, an anti or not anticoagulating, but a coagulating agent in that mm -hmm. that will help the blood stop. Yeah. Um, and packed it for all that he could, but he couldn't get my, my leg to stop bleeding. Um, what we didn't know at the time is that my femur had broken and shifted and cut my femoral artery. It didn't sever it, but cut it enough that it was still pumping a lot of blood out. Right. Um, and so when, when all that's going on, then the stretcher arrives, uh, a guy from a corporal had run it up from the hill below to me, uh, and they got me loaded on the stretcher. And as they were loading me on the stretcher, I looked at my left hand. So prior to injury, I was left-handed. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, when I looked at my left hand, I didn't notice it was injured, but my pinky and ring finger were gone. Yeah. And my middle finger and index finger were dangling, holding on by, held on by tendons, I assume. And then my thumb was dislocated and rotated down. Um, and... Uh, they got me on the helicopter and started carrying me down the hill or not on the helicopter. I apologize on the stretcher and started carrying me down the hill. And uh, while we were walking down the hill, people, I asked a guy carrying the stretcher if my legs were still there because I could feel them. Um, and he said, no, they weren't. And then I asked him what I feel is the, the single most important next question that every man that I treated on the battlefield asked yeah. is my stuff there, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Um, every person, every person I treated, uh, asked that is yeah. my stuff there. Um, and I was disappointed that he hadn't checked. Yeah, uh, like, bro. <laughs> um, it was there. I ended up actually taking shrapnel to, uh, my testicles. I lost one entirely and half of the other one. Um, but while we were carrying me down the hill, somebody asked uh, the corporal if the route had been cleared. Um, and he said, no. So now we thought we we're going to step on another, another IED. And we get me all the way down the hill and everything's fine. But uh, this, what I feel is the most important little section of this story. And I didn't even remember it. It was told to me by the guy that uh, brought this stretcher up to me originally. Um, when they loaded me on the truck, he asked me, how are you doing? And I guess I responded with thumbs up all day, bro. Oh, my. I don't, I don't remember saying that. Um, and I just, 
that's cool. I guess that I have, I have more intestinal fortitude than I thought I did. Uh, and I just recently found out about it because one of the coolest pictures I personally have ever seen, um, is gunnery Sergeant Brian Meyer. Uh, he stepped, he was an EOD technician in Afghanistan. When I was there, uh, he ended up having an IED detonate on him and they took a picture of him after he got injured and he's smiling in the picture. Yeah. And when asked why, he said that he didn't want him getting injured to wreck the morale of the Marines under him. So he stayed happy. Man, that is. You can't. I mean, that right there needs to be so taught everywhere we go. You know what I mean? You know, especially because I one of my jobs is to help organizations and people are always talking down to the guy who's below them or bringing morale down and it's just killing the culture. And there's this level of integrity that comes from thumbs up all day, bro, in your situation that can be gleaned in our own to say, Hey, you know, I'm leading people. I care about others. And in this situation, especially in yours, it couldn't get worse. And you had the fortitude to, to say thumbs up all day. You loved your brother enough and you cared so much for the people that you were with, you were like, hey, I don't want you to freak out. Thumbs up all day. Yeah, I, and, and I don't, the thing is, I don't remember doing it. Um, and and to, to talk on to the point that you were just talking about, I'm a person that feeds off the, of the energy in the room or the energy in the, in the environment I'm in. I don't like negative people that say I can't. I don't like negative people that that's too hard. That's not possible. Like, is it not possible though? Have you attempted it to know it's not possible? Or did you put this confine on yourself and believe that you can't achieve greater than that? I, I, uh, somebody was saying something about that. That's not, um, we'll touch on that in a little bit. I want to, I want to finish the very last part of this and then speed forward in my, my story. Yeah. They got me to the helicopter and, uh, got me loaded on there. Um, and this is the only time that I thought that, that I was going to die. So they take me to the flight shirts and flight group and, um, they get me turned over to them. They're talking to me and everything. They had to give me a new IV, um, because mine got torn out in the Cassie back. Um, and they, then they told me that we're going to put you to sleep. Everything's going to be okay. I was super excited to go to sleep at first because I had just spent the entire truck ride arguing with the corpsman telling him that, um, dude, I'm not going to die. I just need to take a nap. And him telling me that if I napped, I would in fact die. Yeah. And so now I'm being, now I'm being told I can go to sleep, but there was another Marine that had been injured. Um, that was Kazivac seemed completely okay. They put him on the helicopter with the flight crew and, and surgeons and, uh, put him to sleep and he died when yeah. they put him to sleep. And so after they gave me the IV and they gave me propofol, propofol is, is very acidic. It's what you're given before you go into surgery. Okay. Um, but it's also very acidic. And so I could feel it burn through my veins, up my arm, into my shoulder and into my neck. And as it creeped up my neck, I had one thought cross my mind. Isn't this how Tawny died? That's the only time in the entire Cassie back that I thought I was going, that, I, that there was a possibility of me dying. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't die, obviously. We're talking right now. But <laughs> yeah. um, after that, I spent 18 months uh, trying to learn to be 
disabled. Um, and uh, it was difficult. Like I said, I was left-handed. And so I tried to learn to write, uh, eat right-handed and I'd get a spoon towards my mouth. Every time I get here, I dump it on my chest. Yeah. It kept me really thin in the beginning of my recovery, but I ruined so many shirts. Yeah. <laughs> it's a horrible weight loss plan, brother. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and when I got injured being from where I'm from, all the locals rallied behind me and they, uh, um, did a fundraiser and did all these things to show support for, uh, how do I want to word this? My sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and, and I said sacrifice in quotes because I personally believe that I'm a better and more well-rounded individual post-injury. Yeah. Um, and I say that because it humbled me immensely mm -hmm. uh, to lose my legs and have to learn to not just exist, but it, it attempt to thrive yeah. in, in my life. Um, because there's a huge difference between existing and thriving. Right. Um, but I, I willingly dabbled in our narcotics in my early injury. Um, at first just with pain pills and, uh, but you're being given a lot of them at that point. I mean, you're, uh, you, you and I have something similar as far as like, I, if they're wanting to give me a, um, an opiate, a lot of the times I have this the sensitivity to that. In other words, man, I, I really, really like opiates a lot. And so I have to be like, Hey, look, man, if I can get through this any other way, let's do it any other way. And, and yeah, I, so I, I have the same thing, uh, except that I love narcotics. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually said that, uh, so I ended up spending time incarcerated and I said that to a judge, um, I was in the courtroom, um, being sentenced and she asked me why I did drugs. And I said, because I like them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it caught her off guard, but it, I couldn't think of anything truer to say. So, uh, to speed through this portion, I started my addiction with pain pills. Um, while that was going on, I was still in the Marine Corps living in California. Um, and Prior to me getting out of the Marine Corps, I thought that as soon as I moved back to Montana, I would quit using the pain pills that I, I was using. Because hmm. um, you said that they, were, that they were giving me a lot of them. And uh, looking back on it, um, they gave me as many as I wanted. It, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't that they were giving me a bunch. If I felt like I needed more, then they gave me more. Um, and I took advantage of that because uh, opiates are awesome. Um, I... I want to, with me saying that, I also want to say that I don't condone anybody recreationally using narcotics, no. but for me personally, I love them. I love how I feel. I love everything that comes with it, but I also understand the negative side that comes with it. Yeah. Um, from there, I moved to, uh, sorry, I jumped over some. I got given a house by Homes for Our Troops. Um, I had applied for it, qualified for it. They built me a home. Um, to keep your home from homes for our troops, you have to live in it for 10 years. Um, and it says in very fine print that I didn't read in the uh, contract, you can't break the law. Oh, and, right. And uh, I had that house raided twice by the Lake County Sheriff's Department. Oh, wow. Um, and so I, oh. I lost my, I lost it. Um, 
And you would think that would make me quit being a drug addict. One of the times was actually an intervention with dudes that I was in the Marine Corps with. Um, and uh, they intervened and I went to a treatment center. Um, and uh, while at the treatment center, I overdosed um, on heroin in a hospital room. Um, I was Narcan and everything. And uh, I found out while at that treatment center that the very first raid they conducted, they didn't have a warrant. So I couldn't be charged with anything. Mm -hmm. um, and it also meant that I didn't have to stay in the treatment center that I was in. Uh, so I left. But one very good thing did come of that time in the treatment center. Um, I decided I was no longer going to do heroin. Only meth. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> yeah, you. I and this is so funny to so many people are listening right now because I dealt with this so much in a former job and dealing and helping people get through this. I myself struggled. I dealt drugs when I was young. I I peddled weed. You know what I mean? I did all that stuff. And the only thing that got me out of it was I I met a girl. You know, and 23 years later we're still married. And so it's just like I met this girl and I thought, well. She's probably not going to put up with this. So I've got to stop. And this is one of the things that attracted to me to your story because we're so similar in that. But at the same time, you're buzzing through this, but you have just been through the most traumatic event that anybody can go through. And, you know, uh, uh, people could not, there's no way that people could judge you or, or even say, you know, I don't get why he won't quit. But that's, that's the thing that, so I had, uh, I had prosecuting attorneys, um, sorry, not plural, a prosecuting attorney tell me, uh, as well as another judge tell me that if you could do narcotics quietly, we would leave you alone. We understand. Oh, yeah. Um, but I didn't know how to be quiet. Like I have this, this drive that no matter what I do, I want to be the best at it whether that's an illicit activity or it is a positive activity. And so I didn't know how to be quiet. Um, and when they said that it didn't make sense to me and it still doesn't like, because you went through trauma or adversity or something hard, it doesn't justify you doing wrong things. It doesn't justify you making wrong actions. Amen. But at the time I didn't think they were wrong. I truly believe that, that everybody makes what they believe is the best decision in the moment with the information that they have in front of them. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody ever purposely makes a wrong decision. No. The only thing that was wrong with my situation is I had, I had goals and dreams, but they were in the wrong direction. Yeah. I didn't realize that my goals and dreams were actually bringing me whoops, closer and closer to rock bottom. Right. And, and here's the cool thing I found about rock bottom. <laughs> I don't know if it's a cool thing, but um, it has a basement. Yeah. And that basement has another sub-level basement. It, I can think of several times throughout my addiction where I was like, well, it can't get worse than this. And all of a sudden it did. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, the biggest lie we tell ourselves. It can't get worse than this. <laughs> it was like, life was like, really? Hold my beer. Watch. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my beer. Um, but looking back at it, all of my adversities and rock bottoms were completely self-created. I spent nearly a decade with a shovel in my hand, finding out how far I could dig. Yeah. 
my siblings um, abandoned me. I wouldn't abandon is not the right word. They had to pull back from me because um, I was chaotic. I, I, I literally, so after they raided me the, the first time, they raided me again. Um, and I literally just wreaked havoc in this small area I'm from, which made it even worse because it's a small area. If I would have been in a city, I might not have been noticed. Right. Everybody knows you. I'm from yes. a small town. Everybody um, knows. When you belch, they can smell it. Yeah. And so, and I, and I just got more and more chaotic and I quit caring more and more. Um, and then I went to jail. And so when I went to jail, you would think that it would scare me or that it would, it would scare people. But in my opinion, the jail system is set up for recidivism. It's set up for you to go through it, meet new connections, perfect your craft and go back to the real world. And so that's all I did. I went from being in a small fish, to a small fish bowl, um, where I had done my best to, to scrape, claw, and climb as close to the top as I could be, and then got incarcerated, where now I was able to meet big fish. Oh, yeah. Um, and it just it broadened my horizon. So when I got out of jail, uh, I just went right back to what I was doing. I, I, when I got released from jail the first time, it was September 16th. My birthday was September 18th. So I didn't even make it 48 hours before I relapsed. Man. And how long um, have you been in? Uh, I had been in for almost a year. Almost a year and immediately. Yeah. Wow. Um, and uh, you brought up having a good woman in your corner. So <laughs> September 18th, my birthday, I ran into my now girlfriend. We grew up together, uh, knew each other since we were six. Um, after high school, she got married and, and uh, was married for 11 years, babe? 10. 10 years. Um, and uh, had just recently got a divorce, um, and I ran into her in Missoula. And uh, I brought, I had, as a kid, come here and was talking to her and everything. And um, <laughs> I invited her out for coffee, and she said, "Yeah, definitely, we'll go." Because she had just told me that she was single, had been single for for close to a year. Um, and then she ignored me for three months. Um, and hearing her tell the, the, her version of the story is hilarious because she ignored me because I guess I looked at her like a wolf. Yeah. <laughs> looking at a lamb. Because you um, did. <laughs> and uh, so she ignored me for a couple months, which is honestly good. I, I went back to jail two more times or several more times. I don't know if it was two. I don't know. Um, and then uh, I ended up in another treatment center. So by this time, this was the eighth drug treatment or eighth time I'd been to a drug treatment center. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was at a VA drug treatment center where they allow you to keep your phones. And so I'd, I made contact with Dara again. This time I was sober and um, she communicated with me. Uh, and we talked daily and uh, to use a big word that she used when we we're describing it, uh, we became each other's solace from our daily lives. Yeah. It was our escape. Um, and then when I got out of that treatment center, uh, I hung out with her a couple of times and I, whatchamacallit, I stayed sober for five days, which <laughs> sounds silly, but that was the longest I'd ever stayed sober yeah. outside of treatment, outside of incarceration, because with my mentality, if you put me in a treatment center or incarceration, I can conform to that environment and thrive in it. That's fine. But as soon as you give me free reign, I usually ran back to narcotics. 
Mm -hmm. Um, but when I relapsed, I told her, I was like, Hey, I, I relapsed. She has kids and a thriving career where we're from and a reputation to uphold. Um, and I didn't want the, the black cloud that I let follow around, follow me around jade her, or, uh, or jade people's opinions of her. Mm -hmm. And so when I told her she didn't do what everybody else did, she didn't run away. She said, no, I, I don't like that you do drugs, but that's not you. Mm -hmm. And I like you. Um, and because of that, I decided to try to control my use for the first time in almost a decade, tried to control my use. Um, and for those of you that don't understand substance abuse, uh, if, if you ever meet an addict that tells you they're controlling their use, oh. they're a liar. They're a liar. They're not. Um, but it, for this brief moment in time, I was able to because I didn't want to go around Dara high. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't use if I knew if I knew I was going to see her at some point in time that day, because the effects of meth can last four, eight, 12 hours sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't want to be a weirdo wiggling around near her or anything. So I wouldn't use. And um, I slowed my use down, but it didn't keep me out of jail. Uh, the first Valentine's Day that Dara and I spent together, uh, I, we went and saw my probation officer and I went to jail. Um, and then she drove the hour back to our hometown, found out I could bond out and drove the hour back to get me. Um, and she had nothing to benefit. That's dirty. Is that is huh? that's dirty? And that's what got you. Honestly, I don't remember. Um, I know that for the entire year that I was on probation um, with that specific PO, I think I gave her one negative UA. The rest of them, I, I showed up high every time because I didn't care. I did, there was there was nothing in my life that had made me decide to change it. So I didn't care. And I, I had become good at being a criminal, good at being a drug addict. I mean, as good as you can be. I don't know that it's good being good at a bad thing. But right. um, and so she was willing to stick her neck out with all this with nothing to gain. And it blew my mind coming coming from from a street life or street mentality, it's always tit for tat. It's always quid pro quo. Absolutely. Um, but I couldn't understand what she was gaining out of helping me other than me. That's the only thing she was getting. Yeah. And you're thinking, and, and my, and you're draw into the deal here. <laughs> and, well, that was my opinion at the time. Is that like, I had, I thought that, I thought great of myself and poor of myself at the same time in societal standards. I was a piece of shit. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on here. I apologize. Absolutely. But, um, you can say whatever you want, man. But I was, I was a drug addict. Uh, I cultivated the, the drug addict lifestyle with people around me. Um, and, but the other side of me, I thought very highly of myself because I, I composed myself like a, I, I don't know, I, like a true gangster. I don't even know what word to use there because I wasn't a gangster. But yeah. the fact that this this angel, this goddess of a woman was willing to to not only help a person that was uh, a drug addict, a felon and and subhuman societally or by society standards. Um, not only that, but I don't have legs and I'm overweight. Like, I don't understand. I, I couldn't understand it. Um, and then I went to jail another time. Uh, I went to jail February 21st, uh, a week after Valentine's Day. Um, my PO had finally collected enough information to have my probation revoked. Um, and her intent was to send me to prison. 
yeah. um, uh, to finish out my time. My attorney um, stepped up and went to bat for me and, and said that I do drugs because I have PTSD or I did drugs because I had PTSD. Um, I disagreed with it. I even said in court that I disagreed with it. Um, I, you're I owning. It. You're, yeah, I, I, you're, you're like, look, this is my choice. And I'm yeah. discounting PTSD because I know literally nothing, never been in the military. And I know people who have that and struggle, but you're so forward thinking. You're like, no, I'm doing it. Cause I want to, it's got nothing to do with that. I'm completely owning it right now. Yeah. And, and I mean, by, by that time I'd been an addict for nine years, eight years, something like that. So it started as something I wanted to do and then transformed into my entire identity, into who I was. I was a junkie. Um, and uh, I even openly said that to people that I'm a junkie, uh, that, I, that I'm a drug addict, because unlike a, an addict in recovery that wears the term addict as a badge of honor to show where they've been through, uh, I use the fact that I was an addict as a permission slip. Like I told you, I'm a piece of shit. Right. <laughs> I don't, don't expect anything great of me because I'm a yeah. big crap man. I'm a huge turd. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so uh, um, I had no problem owning that, and and to sit in front of the judge and tell her like, oh yes, your honor, I I, I do drugs because of all the horrible things I saw or did, and no, that's a that's a lie. That that is that is a lie. I did drugs um, because they make me feel awesome. That, I mean, that's really why. Um, and, uh, but I, I took the opportunity to get out of jail. And here's another way that Dara stepped forward and, and stuck her neck out for me. So for me to get out of jail, um, I had to have some place to go. Yeah. Um, I lost my house. And so my, my mom didn't want me because of my lifestyle. My sister didn't want me because of my lifestyle. My, none of my other siblings wanted me to live with them because of my lifestyle. Um, Dara was willing to accept me. Um, I remember having a conversation with Dara, um, and she said, Hey, your, your attorney and the prosecutor both called me once again, small area, um, called me and to clarify that it was okay that I, that you lived with me. And they also said like, uh, they started out with, do you know who Tommy is? Like, wow. just like they, they had this, um, belief that I fit in this box that, that I'm manipulating her in some way or I'm doing this or that. And she said, yeah, I know who he is. I've known him most of his life. Um, and because of that conversation with Dara, I had what I call an honest encounter with reality. Um, I was sitting in my cell. Uh, they had just shut the lights off. And when I was in, so being in Lake County jail, um, it's a very tiny, old, archaic jail that's in the basement of the courthouse. Um, yeah. And, uh, they it's not handicap accessible or anything and they were concerned for the safety of myself and others is what they said um that they couldn't put me into a general population cell block for fear that uh i might get jumped or beat up or somebody might take my chair and use it as a weapon i don't know and so i had to be in isolation um and so i'm sitting in my isolation cell uh and i just got done reading my book i had a pretty pretty simple schedule in jail I'd wake up, eat, read, eat, work out, make my phone calls, read some more, um, which is funny because outside of jail, I, I struggled to sit down and read a book. But in jail, I'd, I'd cruise through a book every two days. It, it, 
Yeah. But the lights had just dimmed and I, it hurt my head to read after that. Usually it hurt my eyes. Um, um, and in my beautifully polished stainless steel mirror, um, really looked at myself, uh, you know, as best you can in the back of a spoon. Um, yeah. But uh, I didn't like myself. I, I didn't like who I was um, and I didn't like just what I, what I'd become. And I didn't know what I wanted to be or where I wanted to go or anything like that. But I knew that this was done. Um, and I told Dara that the next day that like, if, if we continue to uh, once again, still not believing that we'd work out, if we continue to be a thing after I get out of jail, um, I will never put meth or my old lifestyle above you. I promise. Um, I don't know that she could believe me when I said it. And I know for damn sure I couldn't believe myself. Right. Um, the, the words fell out of my mouth before I was able to really weigh them. Yeah. Um, but March 7th, the last day I, I went out of jail, it's also my sobriety date. I haven't used since I was released from jail, since I made that promise to Dara. Um, and, uh, but I, I don't think I could have stayed sober without evolving, without looking for something. Mm-hmm. So I, I've said several times that I like drugs. Okay. Uh, my favorite drug is meth. Um, when you, and I injected it intravenously with a needle. When you use meth that way specifically, um, it releases something like 1500 milligrams of dopamine into your bloodstream. Oh, wow. Instantaneously. The closest thing to have that happen naturally is when you orgasm and it releases 500 milligrams. Um, and uh, it was just chaotic. The lifestyle is chaotic. And so I wanted to find a way to generate that. Cause once again, like I liked combat, I liked impact sport or um, uh, football, wrestling, things like that, mm-hmm. uh, aggressive sports. And so I needed that, that rush and that high. So I went looking for it and I found it in the weirdest place. Um, running well my version of running sure um some people had brought up that there was a there was a a veteran suicide awareness and prevention uh race coming up um and i was told that there was a half marathon option available i wasn't told that there were other options that was just so (laughs) and so i agreed to it i I agreed (laughs) yeah i agreed to it um and then when i found out there were other options i i held fast to me saying i would do the half marathon because I gave my word that I would do it as a, as an addict or a junkie, like your word has about as much strength as a cornflake. But post that, if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'll do it. And so I did it. And the day that I showed up to do it, it was cold and it looked like it might rain. And I was terrified of my potential failure because I'd never gone anything further than, than five miles in my chair. Yeah. Um, but it was a cool introductory half marathon because it was set up in a lap system. Mm-hmm. So e- each lap was like three and a half miles oh, wow. um, or something like that. 3.2. I don't remember how it, exactly, but uh, um, so the first lap I ran and my, my arms burned and I was tired because I would find people in front of me and then catch them. And then as soon as I caught them, I would find the next person I could and catch them and just keep driving and trying to catch people because um, that part of me still lives that like, I want to be better than you. I may not be yet, but I will be. Yeah. Um, 
And so then the second lap is we're now like seven miles in. And I'm like, you know what? You could quit. No one would judge you. You did. You went this far. You could quit. And then this other side of my brain was like, I will judge you. I will judge you till you die. Cause you yeah. gave up. Um, and so I kept going. And then, so I'm starting the beginning of my fourth lap. And, uh, I literally, my shoulders went from burning to, I can't feel them. They're just really tight. That's all I know. There's no longer any burning. I'm in a weird elliptical of continuous, like continuous motion that I'm not even telling myself to do anymore. It's just doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, Cause by now it's been like two hours. Like my first half marathon took me two and a half hours. Um, and, uh, I want the burning to subside. I want everything to stop. Um, and, and as I ran through this, um, I've never been mad before that a road was built slanted or who designed that sidewalk or, but these are all things I was getting really mad at while I was yeah, running. You're like, who um, the hell made this thing? <laughs> and then I like would almost want to break into maniacal laughter while crying. Like I was cycling through some emotions very quickly. And some other ones were very intense. Like I remember I literally started crying. I don't know why. I don't know if it was the sidewalk made me mad or, <laughs> but I started crying while I was running. Um, and then partway through the last lap, something incredible happened. Um, and all the anger, sadness, jealousy, self-loathing, everything that I had inside of me evaporated. Wow. And I got hit with this incredible rush of endorphins and dopamine. And, and I wanted to go faster and harder. And, um, and I finished that race and I assumed that as soon as I stopped moving, that that feeling would go away. And it didn't though. It, it stayed wow. for hours. I mean, well into the night. Um, and it was incredible. I, I got high. Yeah. I found a high that wasn't self-defeating or, or life defeating or any, in any way. I found one that, that actually it made me feel incredible afterwards. And so I continued to chase it. Um, I ran, I've ran seven half marathons and two full marathons since then. Wow. And then, uh, Last year in 2020, I ran 2,431 total miles from January 1st to December 31st or something like that. Wow. Let's say that again. Hold on. <laughs> 2,000. How many? 2,431. Miles. Yes. Dude, and, my, my mailbox is a quarter mile. I have a quarter mile driveway. I walk to it. I get wore out. <laughs> But here, here's the thing I had to, so if I take off on my run and I think about how exhausting it's going to be, mm -hmm. um, if I think about, uh, like we just moved. And so if I run from my house, no matter which way I go, I have to immediately, like I'll run a, a mile and then immediately go uphill. Yeah. It doesn't matter which way I go. Um, so you can use the easy side. You have to, <laughs> there, there's no easy side. I mean, the only benefit is that I get to come back downhill when I come back, but, yeah. um, and I like running uphill, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because, uh, the flat ground seems easy after you run uphill. Oh, yeah. Um, two things that go up usually come down. Yeah. Um, and third, because it's hard, uh, my buddy has a hat that says vert isn't real. You're just out of shape. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh. I believe him. Like it, it sucks, but, but so after I, after I found that with running, um, I set 
so I did all those races in 2019. No, one of them I ran in 2020. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But what I wanted to do in 2020 was I wanted to run one race a month, totaling 12 races for the year, um, either half marathon or full marathons. Um, I have a long-term goal of running one marathon in every state. Uh, And then I just recently found out that there is actually marathons available on every continent, including Antarctica. Um, And that would be super cool. Oh, heck yeah. But COVID happened, so I wasn't able to to maintain that uh, that goal. So I altered it because sometimes things go wrong and you have to change your goal. Um, yeah. But I didn't want to lose potential forward progression. So I changed my goal to I wanted to run 2,020 miles in 2020. Um, I actually stole the goal from somebody else. Um, but then when I when I hit when I beat 2,000, um, it was cake from there. And I didn't want to stop. Um, and so I, I decided that I would try to make 2,500. Um, I unfortunately wasn't able to make 2,500. The end of 2020 uh, was interesting for me. I had emergency gallbladder surgery. Um, I got COVID. And then I got blood clots all in three months. Like bang, bang, bang. Yeah. Uh, so 2020 ended interesting for me. But I still accomplished that goal. Um, and now coming into this year um i started a challenge called deliberate discomfort challenge which is a challenge that is put on by mission six zero the company i work for um and uh i'm glad i did it it made me it made me reevaluate my life a little bit because i found out that although running was great it's my form of catharsis it was one-dimensional um I wasn't, I wasn't growing any other way. I wasn't going to the gym and lifting. I wasn't doing anything else. Um, and so I started to, to buckle down and take some more serious action with stuff. Um, and since then, uh, my girlfriend and I are starting our own uh, business, um, making, uh, we're still in the prototype phase of making custom wheelchair bags for wheelchair users. Oh, very uh, because I honestly believe that all of the bags that are designed on the market were designed by people that are able-bodied. Um, they're made of low quality products. Uh, they break easily. They don't, they're not multifaceted in a way to, to, to attach them or anything. It's Um, like equipment, equipment in the, in the mining industry. A lot of times you're like, who the hell designed this thing? It's a guy who's never used this thing in the field ever. Never, not once. He's never used it and is never going to. Yeah, he's never going to. So he doesn't care. He got the thing to work, and then it stopped right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I, I'm a, um, I'm a USA accredited boxing coach. Are you um, serious? Good for you. Yeah. You uh, I, man. <laughs> um, I feel that. So I'm in a, I'm in a lucky position. Uh, a lot of people feel bad for me because of my uh, my injuries or having to they say that they couldn't couldn't comprehend what it would be like to to live my life without my legs or or the added challenges uh, that, that being a disabled person um, adds to it. Uh, and I think the exact opposite because of the fact that I got injured at 21 um, and was able to medically retire um, at 23, um, 
or 22, 23, has, has afforded me an opportunity to, to chase things that I want to. Yeah. Um, it also afforded me that without, without becoming injured, I might not have had the opportunity to become a drug addict. Um, and I say opportunity because I, it made me know myself on a more intimate level. Like I, I'll tell a quick story on that. I was running, like I said, I'm in Northwest Montana. Um, and it was snowy. We're talking like five or six inches of snow. Um, not, not super bad, but annoying to be in a wheelchair. Um, I have an off-road chair that I had broken and I had to repair at the time. So I was running in my regular chair that I run in when it's nice out. And uh, it was miserable. I, was, I bet I was going a half a mile an hour, um, fighting the snow. Hands were slipping. I'm getting wet. Um, and I want to quit. And uh, I remembered times so that the last six months before I went to jail, somebody had stolen my wheelchair. And so I didn't have a wheelchair, but it didn't change what I did. Mm -hmm. I, I remember crawling through snow that was I, like, we're talking almost nipple deep um, to go get a fix or to go do this. And, and it didn't affect me because I knew my why. I knew where I was going. Yeah. Um, and when I was running in the snow that day and I wanted to stop, I took out my phone to call Dara because we have a system set up that if I need rescued, I have a mechanical failure, I crash, something like that. She'll come get me. Um, and I put it away because I said, if you were going to get high, this wouldn't bother you. Ooh. Boom. Wow. If, if, you, if you were going to get a fix, this, this wouldn't impact you at all. You wouldn't care. In fact, you would probably be happy because you know you're going to get high. Yeah. Um. And so I, I'm grateful for, for my adversities, for my struggles, for, for my injury. I'm a better person. That is the most phenomenal thing that, it, it, that I've heard in such a long time. And it makes my little problems seem so minuscule, you know, and it really puts things into perspective. And for me and the people listening right now, it's going to put, and, and people who listen to the podcast know that usually I have a lot to add or that I have a lot to say. but. I just like several times I've just been speechless because, you know, you kind of hold your manhood cheap when you're talking to a guy who's faced what you've faced and got through what you've gone through. And then I'm thinking, man, this week I, I, I've really been <laughs> a jackass, you know, with my little problems or my little issues. And it's not that they're little, we just have them all in context and perspective. And that's one of the main reasons why I wanted you to be on here because so many people in industry right now are having a hard time. COVID's made it difficult. Life is precarious. The industry's weird. Um, we have a lot of organizations out there that are just buzzing through people and culturally aren't sound and people are getting spread all over the place. And it's pretty frustrating, but man, when you put it in a context, it's, it's, it's damned inspiring. And it makes me want to go, you know what, tomorrow when I want to go train, I have a shed. It's a, 12 by 16 shed. And I've got, um, I have a martial arts background, so I have punching bag, speed bag and that kind of stuff. And I'm going to tomorrow, I'm going to be like Thomas trained today. <laughs> he trained today. I got to get up. I got to train. And I just really appreciate that, that stick to itiveness. And it's an inspiration for everybody listening today. And we're so honored. So, so with, with Mission 6-0 and everything that you're doing there, what's on the radar? What's, what's 2021 look like for you? How can people follow you in your journey and um, just keep, you know, being inspired? Um, 
So uh, Mission Six Zero has some cool things coming up. Like I said, we're doing uh, the Deliberate Discomfort Challenge. Um, they have some other uh, uh, team building and, and business building uh, programs available, um, like the master classes. Uh, Jason Van Camp, uh, my boss, and I believe the CEO of the company. I feel bad for saying I believe. Um, wrote a book called Deliber uh, Deliberate Discomfort, and the basis of that book is um, it is military personnel, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, um, Marine Corps EOD, uh, Army Rangers, telling stories that they've experienced in their life. Some of them surrounded by combat, mm -hmm. uh, some of them uh, other things. And then they have a science, a scientist uh, break down the story, pull specific things out of it, restructure it and give it to you in a way that you can reapply it to your life. They even tell you how to reapply it to your life in that book. Very cool book. Uh, check it out. Um, me personally, uh, for my business, um, like I said, we're in the prototype phase of, of some bags. Um, it's probably taken longer than it should have, but I want, I, I'm notorious for breaking things. Like I, I'm a big dude. I break everything. Um, and so I want, when I produce a bag, I want it to be affordable, but I also want it to be able to withstand the use that it that it's going to achieve or that, it, that it's going to be stress tested under um and so i'm hoping to be able to launch at least our 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 wheelchair pouches this year um that uh will be able to be used um to just to carry cell phone wallet stuff like that and then we have some other uh hidden uh things in the bags that um I'm not going to put out there yet because it's kind of proprietary, I guess, because it's not a thing that exists yet. Um, but and to follow me, uh, I am fairly active, becoming more active on uh, Facebook mm -hmm. um, and LinkedIn. Uh, on Facebook, I am Thomas Parker uh, on LinkedIn. I believe I'm under the same thing, Thomas Parker and um, Instagram, which I don't use so very often, uh, which I can't remember. I think it's King Kong 0311 or King. I don't know. Babe, what is my King? What is my Instagram? Um, once again, incredible woman helping me. I don't know what it is. Uh, which interesting story. Uh, it's called King Kong because the way that I move without a wheelchair, I look like a gorilla. Um, it's a name. It's a name that uh, I picked up while being an addict um, and incarcerated. Because uh, I worked. I started working out every day while, while in jail, um, doing throughout the entire day, doing 75 or 750 to a thousand burpees. Um, I don't have anything else to do. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, and I, I have some, some physical goals set for this year. I want to run, um, maybe you can bring your cute face over here. Okay. King Kong zero three one one is my Instagram. Um, going back to the gym, I wanted, I want to see how strong I can get. Um, I'm hoping to, to bench 400 by the end of April. Wow. Where are you at now? Um, I haven't with, uh, with the workout routine I'm doing right now, I haven't maxed. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to max, uh, which we'll call it March 8th is what I think it is. Um, let me know, man. Let me know what's going on. I want to hear it. 
I'm wanna- also going uh, – another up-and-coming close goal is I'm going to attempt the the David Goggins 4 by 48 challenge. Yeah. Um, that guy's but, yeah, I mean, that that's it. I, I have some other smaller goals. Um, but like you just said, with COVID and stuff, some of the, the goals and ideas I have in place might not play out. And so my, my goals are really flexible. I think that, that all of us need to remember that in, in setting goals or plans for, for 2021 that, uh, um, to use a quote from Mike Tyson, we all have a plan until we get punched in the face. Yeah. Um, and so just be flexible that and rigidity, I think is, is tough, you know, it, especially in society, like. Like we said at the beginning of this, I don't know how to use computers. I just learned how to do Zoom meetings because of COVID. <laughs> yeah, don't feel brother bad, brother, because I mean, I'm in the same boat, you know, just out of necessity, but it's really saved. Uh, I know my business and the podcast, it's been very handy. And I just want to thank you for your time. Thomas, I don't know what to say. Usually, I mean, I talk like crazy during these things, but I've just been so inspired by you. And I so appreciate you appreciate your story. And there's so many takeaways here that people can walk away with and just, you know, that whole mentality of keep moving, that whole mentality of, hey, look, own you, own your mistakes. And that's one of the biggest things when I counsel people, it's just like, you are here by a culmination of your own choices. I'll never forget being in a prison one time. And we were there uh, working with some people, there's about 20 guys in this block. And the, the, the main speaker of the day said, you know, I know you guys are here for a multiplicity of reasons. And this one redheaded kid in the back row said, I'm here because my cousin is a snitch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, brother, you ain't here because your brother's a snitch. You're here because you did your cousin. So you did bad things and you made wrong choices. And so I just really appreciate you. I Desperately hope that this isn't the last time we talk. Ladies and gentlemen, please check this man out, Thomas Parker. Check out Mission 6-0. They're doing really cool stuff all the time, and I see them all over the place. And thanks again. Guys, keep going after it. Keep moving every single day, and you'll build a legacy that will far surpass your legend. Can I can I add two things? I apologize yeah. to interrupt. Nope. Um that I apologize to interrupt. That was a beautiful outro. And uh <laughs> Um, I want to say two things. Uh, I So the only confines that exist on your potential success are those you self-impose. Right. Man, um, you are you are greater or you are, are far greater than you give yourself credit for. Um, and secondly, if for some reason throughout this podcast, uh, I inspired you or my story inspired you, um, I have a request for you. Go out and be your best. Do as absolutely good as you possibly can because there are people that are watching you. Some of them want them want you to fail. Yeah. Um, and some of them are watching you because they want to see how it's done. Mm. And so if you perform at your best, you will inspire others to do as what well, do so as well. And um, you might your company, you as an individual, you, uh, your relationship might attain greatness because you hold yourselves to a higher level of ability. Mm. That was worth it. That was a better exit right there, man. Thank you so much, Thomas. I appreciate you. And guys, look, I'm going to ask this to please share this and please follow Thomas. Please follow him on LinkedIn and Facebook and keep being inspired. Support this man with all you have. We owe it to him. And 
I just, I'm speechless. And like I said, I'm usually not. So I just appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you.